I noticed a couple weeks ago um, we preached on this third division in chapter 2. We read through several passages in my notes, even Psalm 122, several verses that I have written here, Psalm 87, Psalm 78, Psalm 137, and Psalm 122. And then we dealt with this last this vision in chapter 2 of God's choosing of Jerusalem and his future for Israel. And we, we came across this, uh, this plan of God for Israel and the nation of Israel. And then the very, that very weekend, I think it was that Friday or Saturday, all of this um, uh, came about in, uh, out of Hamas and out of the Gaza. And then for all of that next week, which was last week, I believe it was, these verses that we talked about on that Wednesday night were posted all over Facebook and very, very relevant uh, for sure, about some of the things that we, we had talked about, even just mentioning that if you go to the Wailing Wall and you pull out some of those prayers, which you, you shouldn't do, but if you, if you did, you would see these Psalms written in, in that. Pray for the peace of Israel. Pray for the peace and the blessing of uh, God's people. And, uh, and it would be put in there. And those are, those are prayers. It's constantly on the mind of the Jewish people. And it should be on the mind of God's people as well. In chapter 2 of Zechariah, verse 10, if you'll look down there, we just kind of briefly skimmed over that and finished up. And I'd like to move to chapter 3, but I, I don't want to miss out on a couple things that just draw your attention to, especially those of you who, who enjoy studying the Bible and studying and finding some important key aspects, especially that deal with prophecy. In, in verse 10, now remember, this is, this is a vision that he's seeing in chapter 2. Uh, when he lifts up his eyes, he sees a man who is measuring out Jerusalem, the breadth and the length thereof. And then, um, uh, and then he, he's asking some questions. A man, he, he, he gets uh, instruction in verse 4. The young man says um, that Israel's one day going to be inhabited. Jerusalem's going to want to be inhabited as a town without walls. He's going to have a multitude of men and cattle. Interesting that God cares about both man and beast. Um, so in the, in the future a nation of Israel and during the millennial kingdom, there's going to not just be a prosperity of people, but there's also going to be a prosperity of animals. And uh, God cares about the animal kingdom as well because there's going to be a lot of cattle in, in, uh, in, in that new Jerusalem. And then God gives his promise of what he's going to be in verses 5. He's going to be a wall to her. He's going to, give, he's going to be glory to her that's in the midst. And, um, and then for verse 6, 7, and 8, he calls out for the people to come back. Get away from Babylon. Come back to Israel. Repent. I've spread you abroad. You need to return. You need to flee and come back for God's glory is going to be spread. And then in verse 8, he that touches you touches the apple of my eye. Don't poke God's eye. And when you mess with God's people, you're poking the eye of God. He cares about that. And because of that, in verse 9, he's going to raise his hand up and he's going to strike. Um, and uh, he, he's going he's to bring judgment upon those who have messed with his eye, who have messed with his people. Now look at verse 10. In the close of this vision, he, he's going to call forth a song. He's going to call forth a song. He's saying and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. 
For lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee, says the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in the midst of you or thee and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee and the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, so close your mouth, all flesh before the Lord for he is raising up out of his holy inhabitation. God is moving on his throne. And he's moving, moving towards his, his people. Now this is a song of praise. But notice in verse 11. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. Clearly looking at a future time. Where God will come and dwell with his people. And... He will, he will judge, bring judgments on the nations of the world. However, there are going to be other nations who are going to be a part of the blessing of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And I will dwell in the midst of them in verse 10. And notice he says in the middle of verse 11, And they, that's the many nations, shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee. Now, now, just the key aspect here, that the Jewish people, the time of the future day of the Lord, the millennial kingdom, is not just going to be about Israel. It will also include other nations. The, there are both God's people, that's Judah and Israel and his seed, and Zion, the daughter of Zion, and many nations who will also be my people. This means that people who are not the nation of Israel will one day be also God's people. Both are said to be my people. So in the future, just think about this. The people of God are, is both diverse and united. Diverse in the fact that in the future, there's still going to be Israel. But there'll be other nations as well. And yet, they both will be God's people, and yet they're distinct. Okay, now that plays an important role in the understanding of, of prophecy. They will both come together to worship God and know Him and be in their midst. Now, in the future, from Zechariah's standpoint of view, Israel is still distinct from all the other nations. Gentiles don't become a new Israel. However, they do become, alongside Israel, part of God's people. All the nations that come together. Now, I, I, I don't, maybe to belabor the point, I think it would be since I put it in the notes. Turn in your Bible over to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. And, and let me just, we're going to jump to the end of, of chapter 19 and verse 24 and 25. But in Isaiah, God is giving the future for all the Gentile nations of the world. In chapter 19, God is going to specifically talk about Egypt. And how Egypt's going to fit in the plan of God in the future. Did you know that God has other nations that are going to come out in prophecy? That he's going to have a plan for. And they're going to fit in. Not just Israel. Now America is not mentioned in the Old Testament. But there are other countries. Such as Egypt. 
And Egypt is mentioned in here and he fits in. And, and God does have a future that will include them. So in, in, this, um, in this chapter, he's going to judge Egypt for their sins. And then he will bless Egypt. And Egypt will take part in a future work. God will use the nation of Egypt in the future. Five times in this chapter, Isaiah says, in that day. Verse 16, 18, 19, 21, and 23. This is clearly talking about a future day in the plan of God's prophecy. This is what will happen. Number one in this chapter, I'm just going to let you know I read through it and I made some notes here. Egypt will come to fear Israel. There, this is told in there. Number two, Egypt will learn to speak Hebrew. It says in this chapter, Egypt will learn Hebrew. Number three, Egypt will have a national monument that will be dedicated to Jehovah. It's called an altar to Jehovah in this chapter. In other words, in the nation of Egypt, Alexandria, I don't know, wherever it didn't say, but in the center of the nation of Egypt in the future, Egypt will construct an altar that will be a monument to Jehovah. Um, number four, in verse 19, Egypt will be saved. They will be delivered. Number five, Egypt will cry to Jehovah in verse 20. And number six, Jehovah will send to them a savior and will save them. This shows me that the savior of Israel is also going to be the savior for the nation of Egypt. You say, well, we're in, how, did, how did we go from Zechariah to Isaiah chapter 19 and talking about this? Well, look at verse 24 and 25. So I just gave you the first um, 20 something verses, 23 verses in, in kind of an outline form. Verse 24 In that day shall Israel be the third with alongside of Egypt and with alongside of Assyria. Even a blessing in the midst of the land. Verse 25. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless. Saying, blessed be Egypt. And underscore the next two words. My people. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about Egypt. And Assyria, the work of my hand. And also Israel who is my inheritance. This is talking about the future, and I believe it's still, Isaiah 19, is still future from our day. Some, somewhere in the, in, the, in, the, in the distant future in prophecy, Isaiah was seeing that end time during the millennial kingdom. Well, God will bring Israel back to the land and bring to them a king. However, God also has plans for these other nations of the world, and they will also be included in God's blessing, and they will come to the land, and alongside Israel, they will find blessing. One person stated this, Michael Vlock stated this, the concept of Israel does not expand. In other words, through scripture, in, in words, Israel always remains ethnic Israel. However, the concept of the people of God does expand. The future kingdom of God will include other nations and Gentile people. 
but Israel remains ethnic Israel. So when we go back to Zechariah 14, uh, well, actually go over to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, the last chapter of the book of Zechariah in a time in the future, this verse 16, this verse is talking about a time in the future when the Lord will be among them and rule them in a kingdom as king. Verse 9 and 13 of chapter 14 talk about in that day. It's still future. And notice what he says in verse 16 of chapter 14. He says, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King and the Lord of hosts and they will keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Gentiles will come to Jerusalem and will worship Jehovah on the fe- at the Feast of Tabernacles and, and worship the Lord. This is, this is a prophecy that is going to happen and then he's going to say, I, you know, this is, this is going to include more than just Israel. Now, the reason I, I belabor this is because there are so many who in, um, in the looking of the New Testament when it comes to the church is that the church has now become the new Israel and has replaced Israel, the Old Testament, and all the promises then for the future are going to be fulfilled through the church, which is us. And, and, and I'm going back into places like Isaiah and Zechariah and saying, that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God looks into the future and still sees a future for the nation of Israel. They will always be His people. They always have been. They always will be. However, other nations will also come and be included alongside of Israel as well. And so God is not finished. Here's the point. God is not finished with Israel. And to prove that, in the next vision, God is going to build upon that for Zechariah that God is not done with the Jews. He still has a plan for them. So when you go back to chapter 3, we see a new vision at a new time. But he's going to reiterate some of that same theme in the nation of Israel that God is not finished. God is still working. Now remember I told you that these visions um, are, are all given on one night. This is the fourth vision. Chapter 3 is the fourth vision that, that Zechariah sees. And there's like one right after another. God just piles on it. Talk about a long night of all, four, or all eight of these visions. And Zechariah has seen three of them. And the themes that we've already dealt with. God's going to judge the nations of the world. His anger is against them because they've poked him in his eye. We've seen the theme of Jerusalem is going to be his special chosen people and his chosen city. We've seen that God will bless his people once again. We've seen that God will use some instruments like craftsmen who will come down and judge the nations of the world. We saw the angel of the Lord standing ready to guard his people. We have seen that he is pleading before the Lord 
Lord of hosts, the angel of the Lord is. We have seen that he will become a wall of protection, that, he, that they will dwell safely in their city. They won't have to worry. He will be his, their glory. He will dwell with them and he will love them. We saw that there's a song that they will sing when that coming day uh, comes and God is rousing on his seat, getting ready to come just as if, um, it, it, as if it's happening already. He's seeing this in motion. Now, this vision is going to reiterate some of those same types of things, but it's going to focus more on what God is going to do in rescuing Israel. Look down in chapter 3, in verse 1. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. We're introduced to some characters in this vision. Joshua, we'll see who that is. Joshua is the high priest. Don't think Joshua from the book of Joshua. This is a different Joshua. The angel of the Lord, he's been introduced before. We know who that is. I believe that's the second person of the Godhead. That's going to be Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The devil is introduced in this verse. He's going to come up in this scene. Later on, there are going to be a heavenly host that are standing by. That's what it's going to be told. We see the city of Jerusalem is going to come up. We see in, the, in verse 9, um, in verse uh, yeah, 9, there's going to be a group of friends or fellows that are going to be standing alongside Joshua. And then we're introduced at the end of this vision to three titles. Um, the servant, the branch, and the stone. Which I'm just, I'll just let you know, they're all three equal to the angel of the Lord. Just three new titles that are going to be given for the same person, which is Jesus Christ. That's the introduction. Those are just the characters that are going to come out in this story. But what is this, what is this vision about? This vision is about what God is going to do by saving his people. This vision is about cleansing. It's about washing clothes. You wash clothes, all right, we got to do that on a regular basis because our clothes get dirty, and, and that's what sin does. And sin has crept into the nation of Israel, and it's blinded them, and it's polluted them. And God has given a call at the very beginning of this book, you return to me, and I'll return to you. Then he's given four, he's given three visions about his blessing. What he's going to do, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to choose Israel. You're going to prosper, you're going to find peace, I'm going to be a wall, I'm going to dwell with you, you're going to see my glory, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of your enemies, I'm going to surround you, I'm going to protect you, you're going to, you're going to live without fear, you're going to find peace, the Messiah is going to come, and all these people are going to come along and instead of fight you, they're going to go with you up to Jerusalem and they're going to worship. He told them all of this. However, there is always a condition to the blessings of God. God never overlooks sin. If you want the blessings of God, then you must repent. If you want the prosperity of the promise of God for the future Israel, then Israel has to come to a place where they see themselves in their sin and they cry out to the Savior to forgive them and he pardons them and then in, uh, brings them into that kingdom of blessing. God will not allow the blessings to be enjoyed from a person who has refused to accept the forgiveness that he offers. God doesn't overlook sin. 
And so this whole vision here about Joshua and his garments and standing before the Lord and the devil and what's going to happen and transpire in this vision is a vision of what God is going to do by saving his people. This is God's plan for redemption of Israel. This is what he's going to do, and he's going to do it in a symbolic fashion. And he's going to show us through this vision how he's going to purify and cleanse his people. For them to have a right relationship with God, they must deal with their sin. And God has a plan in how they can deal with it. So, verse 1, he shows me Joshua, the high priest. I just want you to to know this high priest is mentioned in the book of Haggai, chapter 1 and verse 1. He's mentioned in Haggai 1 and verse 14. It's the same individual. He's mentioned in the book of Ezra, chapter 5 and verse 2. He is a key part, he is a key person who, who is one of the ones who comes back from Babylon to Jerusalem to help Zerubbabel and rebuild the temple and Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He is one of the ones who is a key figure in the revival that is happening during Zechariah's day. And he's the high priest. He's the son of Jehoshadak, who is also mentioned in, um, in Haggai and Ezra as well. He plays an important part. And notice what he's doing. He's standing in this vision before the angel of the Lord. What does that mean? The word standing before in connection to the high priest is a, is a duty of worship. So what he's doing is he's, he's going to be dressed in this high priestly garb. And he's seen standing before the Lord. This is the same terminology. I don't have time to show you uh, the other passages of Scripture. But what this means is he's busy about the temple serving and worshiping the Lord. That's what he's doing. And there were no chairs in the Holy of Holies. There were no chairs in the holy place. There were no chairs in the inner place of, of the temple and of the tabernacle. Why? Because the priests were to be always on their feet, worshiping and serving Jehovah. That was their responsibility. And they were doing it before the Lord. That was how their task was. So what, Joshua, what, what Zechariah is seeing is he's seeing Joshua as the high priest in his garb, worshiping the Lord and serving the Lord. That was his duty. That was what he was required to do as a priest. Now, I want you to understand him standing before the Lord as a high priest. He is also a representative. He, is a, he has a responsibility. The high priest, when they went before the Lord to make offering, they always did it in the place of the people. They stood in the place as representative of the larger group. You see, all of the people were not allowed into the Holy of Holies. All of the people were not allowed to make the altar. Remember when Saul decided that Samuel was late to the sacrifices? And Saul decided, well, just any old blow could do this. I'll just do it. And then all of a sudden, he took the sacrifices and he made the sacrifices. And Samuel came over the hill and said, Saul, what are you doing? You can't do that. That is, the, that is the, uh, the responsibility and the duty of the high priest. He stands as a mediator between God and the people to represent the people. So Joshua stands before the Lord, but he is a representation. And we know that because throughout the vision, his name and the name of Jerusalem that is mentioned in the very next verse, and then later on you will see him, and then Zion will be mentioned. It's interchangeable. So he represents the larger nation of Israel. 
So he's a, 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 a symbol of something bigger. And in fact, that word symbol is used later in the same chapter. But there's a problem. Look down in verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. And he stood before the Lord. So there's a problem with Joshua. Joshua is standing there in his garments representing the people of God, worshiping God. But while he's doing that, he has filthy clothes. Now, um, as Joshua is representing the people, he's standing there before God. The Hebrew word for filthy garments here literally reads garments that are filled with human waste. This is talking about a garment that has been spoiled and spotted with human dung. You see, this is what God thinks of our sin. This is how Israel stands before God when they were coming in making their sacrifices. This is how God addresses sin as soiled clothes. I don't want to necessarily belabor the point here because of the grossness of this scene. But I think we need to get a good glimpse. The smell. The, the scene. The embarrassment. Alright, I've had a couple of my little ones. Who have come to me. In, in a store. Completely embarrassed. Because they couldn't get to the bathroom fast enough. Alright. Do you know a mess in the middle of the store with a three-year-old and you got a puddle and it even gets worse when it's more than a puddle, right? What do you do with the clothes? How, how do you get them back in the car? You just, you, you, did, you know, do you go to the Walmart section and find the tub and the soap and just do it all right there? <laughs> what do you, you know, I mean, I can remember the few times that I felt completely Helpless as a father in the middle of the Walmart aisle because I forgot to take him to the bathroom before. Here's Joshua standing before God, supposedly worshiping the Lord, and he has garments that are smeared with dung. This is, these, are, these are supposed to be nice clothes that the high priest wears. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord. Notice Joshua not one time in this vision defends himself. In fact, he doesn't even speak in the whole vision. He's just a person standing. He has nothing to say because he knows he's completely guilty. You see, Zechariah gets it. Joshua gets it. Paul got it. Because Paul said, all of my righteousness, when it stood before God, it was nothing but dung. Because that was who I am in and of myself. Sin is dirty. Sin brings shame. Sin brings guilt. And in rebellion, Joshua stands before God where his people have completely rejected the Messiah and rejected him. And this is the position of God's people in representation form of Joshua. His people have turned from him. And when God today 
present application, looks down on that little nation of Israel today, do you know what God sees? He sees this exact same symbol. You know why? Because his people have taken the son who came to them in love and put him on a cross. That was the message of Peter on the day of Pentecost. That was the message of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he pointed his finger in the face of those who were standing there that day, which they were Israelites, they were Jewish people, and he said, you murdered him because you rejected the father sent his son. Jesus gave a parable while he was alive that the owner of the the vineyard sent his son, and what did you do with his son? You murdered him and you killed him. And so I'm all about backing Israel. I'm all about America being on the right side of God's people, not poking God in the eye. However, the vision that is seen here in Zechariah chapter 3 is a very sober vision of the nation of Israel who has shaken their fist in Jesus of Nazareth's face, put him on the cross, and would not and to this day does not believe in him. And God looks at his people and he's completely ashamed at them because they have rejected his love. Do you know what what Paul says in a very important and a key passage in in the New Testament in the book of Romans chapter 11? He said, my heart's cry and my heart's prayer is that Israel would be saved. Because blindness has come in part. He goes through that whole section of of Romans to prove exactly what is going on in this vision. He believed Zechariah. And he looked back and he saw the nation of Israel as, as a people who need cleansing. Because of their sin and their rejection of him. Now go back to verse 1 again. We not only see that Joshua is a high priest that's standing there with filthy garments from verse 3, completely guilty before God, but enter in another character and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So my interlinear Bible in the last part of verse 1 uses the word Satan twice. The verse literally reads this way. If you were to see it in the interlinear Bible, that would be the Hebrew in the English underneath. The Hebrew transliterated, or the English is transliterated with the Hebrew that is over there. It would say this. Satan standing at his right hand, Sataning him. The Hebrew word Satan means the one who opposes, or the one who is against, or the one who is standing in opposition to. So this means the resistor is resisting him. The opposer is opposing him. The accuser is accusing him. The Satan is Sataning him, if you want to put it that way. The noun and the verb is used here, or the infinitive is used here in this verse. It's translated in the King James as the word resist. He's resisting him, but it's the same exact word. Um... It's bringing us, here is who he is, and this is what he does. He accuses, he, he, um, he opposes. The scene shifts from a temple 
where a priest is ministering before the angel of the Lord to now a courtroom with the judge, the accuser, and the accused. And Satan can somehow in the Old Testament and possibly even in the New Testament can come before Jehovah and accuse and oppose us in the presence of God. This is what is happening in the book of Job. And this is what seems to be happening in this passage here. It's interesting as well that Satan can somehow resist and oppose God's people. What is he doing here? He's resisting them. He's accusing them. He's against them. He's saying things like this. Look at him. Look at what he looks like. He doesn't deserve your love. Look at the garments that he's got on. Look at all that mess that's all over his clothes. How dare he even come into your presence like that? Look at all the times that they have failed you and run to the Lord, to the world. Look at the idols that they have served year after year after year and the messed up lives that they have. You don't want them. They don't deserve you. Let them go and leave them alone. I wonder if the devil sometimes looks up and says, there are no righteous people left on the earth. Just wipe them out, God. Warren Wearsby said this, when Satan talks to us about God, he lies. But when Satan talks to God about us, he tells the truth. We are filthy, rotten sinners. We don't deserve God's love. Now, with the few moments that we have left, can I, can I point out something here? John MacArthur states in his commentary, the entire plan of God in the history of Israel sits on this verse. Just think about that. What will Jehovah do? Will he eliminate his people? Will he kill them and destroy them? Will he wipe them out because they're standing there rejecting him in their filth? Will he shut them down and start over with a brand new people of God? Because Israel has failed. Will he destroy them and move away? Is all hope lost for God's people Israel? MacArthur points out rightly so that this concept right here is the dividing line between dispensationalists and covenant theologians. That may mean nothing to you, but just listen and hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll bring some clarity. The question and this scene and how the answer divides those about the future of Israel and God's plan for prophecy. If you come away and God is done with Israel and has replaced Israel with the church, then God has abandoned his original covenant and changed his mind. But if the answer to the question is God is not finished with Israel, then you have to come away as a dispensationalist knowing that God is still yet has a plan for the nation of Israel. And this verse... And the accused and the accuser standing before the angel of the Lord who is the judge 
the dividing line is, am I done? What am I going to do? So look at verse 2. God has a plan. The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? All right, so what God is going to respond is God is going to respond, I'm not finished. In fact, go over to Romans chapter 11. I think this would be good because this question is asked by Paul. In Romans chapter 11 in verse 1, Paul comes to the same conclusion, the same crux in, as Zechariah did in Zechariah chapter 3 when he sees this vision. And he says this, Paul says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Legitimate question. Is God done with Israel? And Paul says, God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2, God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Um, look down in verse 29, 25, just for the sake since we're already here. For I would you, brethren, that you not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. That blindness is in part, is happened to the Israel until the fullness of time is come. And so all Israel, future tense, shall be saved as it is written, looking back into the Old Testament, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior. And he shall turn away the uh, or away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them. Who's them? Israel. When I shall take away their sins. And what we're getting ready to see in Zechariah chapter 3 is we're seeing the fulfillment of what Paul is seeing. God's getting ready to take away the sins of Israel. Now notice he's seeing this in the future. This is going to happen one day in the future. And here Israel stands before God as a rebellious, um, sinful, polluted, idolatrous people filled with guilt. Yet they're still claiming Jehovah. Does Israel, the nation of Israel, not claim Jehovah today? That Jehovah, the Old Testament? They do. The problem is they reject his son. Who also is Jehovah. Did you pick that out in the verse? I, I love when the Bible um, gives us things to think about. Ponder about this in verse 2. Jehovah said unto Satan, the Jehovah rebuke you. How many Jehovahs are in that verse? Is there one or is there two? Is there one or are there two? You come to this in Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus quoted it when the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought they had tricked him. All right, Jesus quoted The Lord, Jehovah, said unto my Lord, Adonai. David seeing that from a perspective. How many lords are there? Okay, you see, to someone who is a Trinitarian, who, who believes the Trinity like we are, one God is in three distinct persons, we don't have a problem with this verse. 
Because the Lord, who is the Son, the angel of the Lord, said to the devil, who is, he's our advocate, said to the devil, the Lord, the Father, Jehovah, who sits on the throne, rebuke you. (laughs) The Lord, the Son, the Lord, the Father, and then if you want to throw in the Lord, the Spirit is in there as well. All right? So we don't have a problem with this verse. When you see the different persons of the Godhead, Jesus is Lord. He's called Lord in this verse. The Lord, the Father, is Lord. And Jesus is using his own name from the name of the Father to rebuke the devil. And we came to that in one of the other visions as well. Do you remember this conversation between the angel of the Lord and the Lord of heaven and earth? And you had this conversation between the Godhead as well. You see it again. You say, what, what's, what, what is that important? It's important because the devil flees at the name of the Lord, the Father who sits on the throne, and the Son who mediates for us. That's what's going on here. And interesting enough, Jude in the New Testament picks up on this book and he visits this imagery and this theme in his little short book. When we were going through the book of Jude, we came to this passage and we walked through this because the imagery of the, of, of the rebuking in the name of the Lord, the devil that comes up in the fight over Moses' body as well as the terminology that is used in this passage of the brand that is plucked from the fire. The imagery of the stick that is pulled out of the fire. This is used in Amos chapter 4 and verse 11 when he was talking about Lot who was plucked out of Gomorrah and Sodom. This word is used of a rescuing of a person who is in imminent danger. So here God sees Joshua representing the nation of Israel as a stick headed for the fire. And God in his love and compassion says, no, 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 wait. I like that stick. Give it to me. I remember when as a kid, we went, on, we went, we were, I don't remember if it was a church event, it was a bonfire event that we were at. And, um, and you know, I'd spent the day going around and we whittled our own little sticks. Okay, that was a cool thing to do. You had your own little knife and you got to whittle your stick and I made a little sword with it. And then it came time for the bonfire time and I had put my sword, you know, the one I'd been playing with all day next to my little, little bench and somebody picked it up and was getting ready to throw it in the fire. And, and all of a sudden I screamed out and said, no, that's my stick. And I reached up and I grabbed it. And I was you know, my precious, <laughs> this is, this is it's a tender, this is my stick. <laughs> and I get this picture, here's the devil who's accusing his people. And the question is, God, are you done with them yet? Look it, you've gone through, you're in the second to the last book in the Old Testament. How many prophets, how many kings, how many opportunities, how many promises, how many covenants have you made with him? Are you done with him yet? Then you come to the book of Romans chapter 11 and Paul says, all right, God, you gave him a chance. They murdered the Messiah. They put him in the grave. He rose again and they still won't accept him. And Paul says, is God done with his people? 
Is God done with Israel? God forbid. Give me that stick. I'm going to take it back one day. Now, in the later in the scene, and we don't have the time to do it, God's going to take those filthy garments and he's going to pull them off of Joshua. And he's going to bring over these brand new pair of clothes. And he's going to put them on him. And Zechariah says in one of the verses, wait, 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 wait. Put a hat on him too. And he gets that hat. And the angels come over and put the hat on top of his head and fit it just rightly. And there he is all cleaned up and presented to the Father. That's what God's going to do. And can I just say in just an... Just a picture form. That's what God did for you if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. He took you as guilty, filthy, in filthy rags. And through Jesus, His righteousness, put onto you a new robe of clothes. Now, I'm not going to insert the church into Zechariah 3. Because this is a promise to the nation of Israel. God's not finished with his people. Father, I pray as we close tonight, we do pray that you would come quickly and that you would continue these promises that are yet unfulfilled. And we know that after 2,000 years, more than 2,000, 2,500 years of the nation of Israel being spread abroad all over the world to the nations of this world, even attempted to be wiped out from the face of the earth multiple times, most recent in World War II. And now they are back in the land. And there is an anger and a hatred to God's people that is still just as fresh as in the time of World War II or in the days of Alexander or in the days of Rome or any other time. There's a hatred to God's people. It's, it's manifest on the national news every night here. And yet one day, you're going to take Egypt. You're going to take Syria. You're going to take these nations around them. And you're going to rescue your people and you're going to put your people in the land and all the nations of the world will come and call you blessed and will accept and worship Christ in that holy city. It's hard for us to believe because it's such in turmoil right now. We don't even know where America places finds itself in the future plan of the nations of the world. We don't even know. But we do know what you're going to do with your people. And Lord, uh, thank you that you have included us. That as Romans says, that we have been engrafted into the promises as your people. Now we are included in the people of God. We're not Israel. We don't become Israel. But now we are included as your people as well, alongside of. And there's a plan and a place that you have for us for the future. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And... Uh, and save your people, as Paul prayed out, that, there, that all Israel would be saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you. Don't forget about the activities this weekend.